This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. As Koto just said, this is the first formal talk in the intensive. We've been meeting since Monday on the topic of the harmony of Vipassana and Zen. Um, Fu Schrader, the abbess of Green Gulch Farm, Green Dragon Temple, uh, asks Gil if he would join her in a, a three-week period of teachings. And he said yes, and then she asked me if I would join too, and I said yes. And I want to say a little bit, somewhat to set the stage for where I think this inquiry into the relationship, harmony between Vipassana and Zen. It, It has occurred to me, especially over the last 20 years, that that more and more practitioners of the Buddha Dharma in the West uh, draw on different traditions. Um, And and increasingly, it seems that there is many people who find it helpful. Well, anyway, they, they, they read and practice in the Vipassana tradition, we can call it that, and in the Zen tradition. Uh, That's my experience, mostly from being a teacher at San Francisco Zen Center and sometimes teaching in the Vipassana tradition. My early interest in Buddhism was in Zen Buddhism in Japan. And my early practice in Buddhism was in Thailand, in the Theravadan tradition. And then I returned to, uh, well, I, I, I came to United States for the first time and became more involved in Zen practice. One thing, in considering this relationship between Zen and Vipassana has prompted me to do is look at my own, how I relate to the two of them, you know? And and what I find out was that um, my sense of practice, or to use a Greek word, orthopraxy, you know, that when when I use the term Buddha way, which is common in Zen, I think of the practice of awakening and that that can be picked up in many ways, you know, maybe without any involvement in Buddhism at all, in, in an orthodox way. And I think of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy 
adhering to complying with the the principles the beliefs of a certain tradition and then orthopraxy complying with the practices of a tradition and i have come to think i only did this reflection quite recently but without having acknowledged it within myself i have come to over over the decades maybe from the very beginning when i uh, like when i went to thailand and became a thai monk um i was i thought of myself as a zen practitioner who is in thailand to be immersed in buddhist training uh, and then at a certain point i i came to united states and i thought i came straight to san francisco zen center to engage in a buddhist practice in the zen tradition uh, and it was never for me like well how do you how do you justify if you're a zen person how do you justify being in in a theravadan monastery wearing theravadan robes and following their tradition um that that was never a concern i was practicing the buddha way the way of awakening that shakyamuni um proposed and it is my notion to this day that the spirit of the zen way is exactly that maybe it's just the convenience that i would think that the spirit of the zen way the heart of the zen way is what i'm doing by wonderful coincidence uh but what i'm trying to say is that each of us whether we do it intentionally or we do it through our own involvement of orthopraxy the practices we take up we have structured for ourselves implied by how we consider practice and how we engage in practice it implies our notion of what is the buddha way what is, what is the appropriate expression of the buddha way so that was my interest in in, in joining uh, fu and gil in this exploration of these two traditions and in how they overlap and how they don't and of course there was the the added benefit of getting to teach with fu and yo you know which i deeply appreciate uh, it's it's always intriguing and enjoyable to you know engage your peers you know we've all been practicing for more longer than we we think you know 
the years just tick by now. Um, and then to listen how each of the three of us will describe uh, the, the, the relationship between Vipassana and Zen. And I would say underneath that, how each of us would describe the authentic expression and engagement in the Buddha way, acknowledging the Chakyamuni Buddha began practicing before there was any such thing as Buddhism. You know? And of course, if we, if we wanted to be in a deconstructive mode, we could ask ourselves and each other, Vipassana. Well, this is actually the, the, the construct or the this, this strategy, as far as I know, of Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein in trying to make a particular way of meditating more appealing in the West. So they, they stripped of it its Theravadan monasticism and just brought it as a meditation tradition. And then, of course, San Francisco Zen Center was founded by Shinri of Suzuki, um, who came here. Well, I think he came in the late 50s, but he, he, he got involved with Western students in the early 60s. Um, and he created a kind of orthopraxy for us here in the West. Another question that intrigues me is, is there a Suzuki Roshi Zen-ism? And it may seem like I'm just rattling around in idle thoughts, but what I'm trying to do is have you think, and where are you? And, and what's your position in terms of Buddhist practice? You know? Not so much to reify it, not so much to um, place yourself in a narrow range of practice but to just be able to recognize and acknowledge for yourself, what is your notion of appropriate practice? No? And then of course, there's the interesting question of what do we consider to be appropriate practice? And then what do we actually do? But that question, I think, folds into practice. I mean, anybody who's meditated for more than 10 minutes knows that the intentionality with which you sit uh, may not be reflected in what's actually going on in your sitting. And then when Gil and Fu and I started to talk, 
we, we discussed various ways to come at this topic. And the one we settled on was a classic early Buddhist uh, three-phase teaching. Not to say that they happen sequentially, but there's three aspects that, that can happen simultaneously or sequentially. The first one is sila, the ethical conduct that supports practice. Samadhi, the, um, the state of consciousness that realizes the Buddha nature, to use that term, the essence of practice, the, the awareness, the awakenness, and then uh, panya, the wisdom, the insight, how as, as we engage consciousness and our behaviors that, uh, that express what's being revealed and engaged, when that's engaged, um, it, it, it creates a state of consciousness that's capable of experiencing the human condition in a way that enables a lessening of suffering and an increase in the joy of liberation. Sila, Samadhi, Panya. And then when we reflected on it, we, we thought, well, actually, most of us in the West, our main attraction, especially in the Vipassana schools and the Zen schools, I, I would say this is probably not true for the Pure Land schools and, and other schools, several other schools. But in the Vipassana and the Zen tradition, the primary interest, the gate through which we all enter in and start to engage is meditation, no? is the practice of samadhi. And so we thought, let's, let's go at the, let's engage in this way. We'll start with samadhi, then we'll go to panya, and then we will go to sila. And it somewhat reflects the path of practice that many of us take up, you know? Like if, if you just think about the extraordinary popularity of mindfulness now, you know? when I came to, to the, the US, you know, you more or less kept it a secret that you meditated, you know? It wasn't a polite thing to do in, in common society. Now, if you don't meditate, you know, you're, you're considered to be one of those uh, backward people uh, who hasn't quite realized what's important in life or who hasn't realized that mindfulness can also you know, help you with your, your mental and emotional uh, distress. Mm. 
So we started with samadhi. And, uh, and that's what I would like to talk about tonight. The first short talk, and I know some of you were there, but I suspect many of you weren't on, on Monday morning when I give a short talk on this. And what I said was something like this. Pretty much everyone who sits down to meditate discovers how extraordinarily messy their mind is. You, know? you, you sit down, usually you have, by, the time you, by this time you've read several books and, you, and they all seem very appealing and appropriate and uh, rational. And then you sit down with the intention of being present, of, of letting thoughts come and go, of sustaining awareness of the breath, and, and letting that awareness anchor you in the here and now as the thoughts come and go. And then for almost everybody, there are glimpses of that. And then there's all sorts of other stuff that happens. It's as if we sit down and the unsettled issues of our life some of which we, we know of, and many of which we don't. And the way those unsettled issues have been encoded into our bodies, creating this intriguing, mysterious, psychosomatic being. And we sit down and somehow that psychosomatic being takes the opportunity to speak loudly to us, as if to say, finally, I've got your attention <laughs> and you're going to stay here and you're going to listen to what I'm going to express. And some of it's in ideas, lots of it's in emotions, lots of it's in somatic experiences, uh, lots of it is in fantasies, um, anticipations, bitter memories, joyful memories. Um, and so the, the, the straightforward challenge of the Buddha way, of, of discovering and realizing what it is to wake up. You know? The straightforward challenge is, okay, how do I relate to that state of being in a way that, that will help alleviate the distress, alleviate the recklessness of my thinking, the intrigues of my psychological, psychosomatic being. You know? 
this this is um, this is the challenge of the Buddha way. And and I state it like that because usually when we read the books, when we look at the sacred literature, we're presented with the pristine jewels of awakening of the great ancestors. And they are exquisite. And, and they are inspiring. Uh, at least I find them inspiring. And then sometimes they seem remote to what happens in our own sitting. And so that's what I'd like to talk about. And by the way, Gil gave a beautiful uh, Theravadan, early Buddhist analysis of this this morning. And I'm going to give my own analysis, but I would strongly recommend you, uh, if you can, at some point it'll be on the web. I'm not sure when, but I would recommend listening to it. Um, the, the first uh, notion I would offer you is um, rather than think, okay, this pristine illuminated consciousness is what I'm aiming for, you know? But rather than that, to sit down, maybe with humble acceptance, but with acceptance that what's going to pour forth is the very stuff that has accumulated through being alive, you know? Look, I, I think now, especially in the last five to 20 years, as we've become more uh, familiar with the notion of trauma and secondary trauma and generational trauma, you know, we, we, we see um, that something in the process that we call meditation, in Zen we call it Zazen, quickens the opening of these distresses. And to approach them with an intentionality that accepts, so it is. This is the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, that, that human life has a capacity to create situations, experiences, emotions, interactions, relationships that cause distress, both in an agitating way and then also in a deeply wounding way. And as we enter in, entering in with the heart and mind 
that's willing to enter that exploration. Like, like that Dharma gate, that place where we are in our being, is where we're going to sit. It's where we're going to find our Dharma seat, as we say in Zen. It's where we're going to find our truth. It's where we're going to become ourself, which we always are, but we don't quite recognize it or realize it. And, and that initiation, huh? that initiation into a willingness to be now is um, a very significant event in the path of the Buddha way. Huh? It's the beginner's mind. It's the beginner's heart. It's the heart of compassion, and it's the heart of trusting something within yourself. And in the Zen way, often you can read uh, you know, admonitions. You know? Like there, there's a, a, a classic fascicle written by the finder of, of Soto Zen, this kind of Zen, in, in Japan. And in one of his seminal works, the Menduva, he said, all the Buddhas, all the ancestors, without deviation, without accepting, practice this way, practice this mysterious the Japanese word is myo, which translates as wondrous, mysterious, or I would, I, I would offer you this addition to those, which are the usual translations, non-linear path of awakening. Yeah. And he calls it jijiyu zanmai, the samadhi of engaging the self and letting the self, the workings of the self teach the Dharma. So that's the initiating point. And then I'd like to talk about it in a certain way which I have come to consider the way to engage it as a practice. And the way, to, the way uh, and it's interesting because Gil offered this morning in his Dharma talk, the way he engages it as a practice. And it's interesting, there's some overlap and some difference between what has come up for me And what has come up for me is a fourfold process. Notice, acknowledge, contact, experience. That in any moment, 
we can notice. No? And I'd offer you this exercise right now, this experiment, maybe is a better word than an exercise. And here's the exercise. Stop breathing now. And now let yourself breathe and notice if you're in the middle of an inhale or the middle of an exhale or in between. And here's the deep teaching of noticing. We're noticing what's already happening. We're not making something that's not happening happen. We're noticing what's already happening. The practice of awakening is not asking you to be someone else. The practice of awakening is to discover the person you already are. And each time we practice noticing, you know, and, and, you know, I would say to you, if you've made a practice of stopping 10 times a day and counting to three or maybe five, and then notice are you breathing in or breathing out? After a couple of weeks, you would start to see this is really influencing my state of consciousness. You know? Noticing. You know? And then noticing it can initiate, you know? Am I breathing in or am I breathing out? And then what else is happening? You know? What's the state of mind of now? What's the, what's the content of mind? You know? How is that um, expressing itself through the breath? You know? The breath is extraordinarily sensitive to our state of being. Yeah. And, and that's what makes it such a wonderful object of meditation. Because not only does it reflect our state of being, but as we engage the breath and, and work with allowing the breath to just happen, it influences in a helpful way the state of mind, the state of emotionality, and, and helps something within us to start to settle. So noticing. And then in Zazen, um, 
One thing I, I didn't mention about myself was that in, in the midst, after I did the Vipassana training, the, the Theravadan training, I, um, and I, I started in the Soto Zen way, I also, first of all, by coincidence, I just ended up living in a household of Rinzai Zen practitioners. Uh, but I also, over the years, have practiced with several Rinzai teachers. And what I learned there was another point of emphasis, which was to work with the breath intentionally. And so I'd like to offer you this. And uh, this intentional way of working with the breath. That as you breathe in, can you breathe in, in in a kind and tender way? I, I wouldn't recommend saying this, but maybe that would help too. But can you have this kind of attitude? Can you have this kind of disposition? Like you're breathing in as if you're saying to yourself, it's okay. You're going to be okay. You're okay. It's going to be okay. Just like that kind of tender inhale. And then as you breathe out, it's like, like a sigh, like a letting go. You're not trying to force anything at all, either with the inhale or the exhale. You're trying to breathe in a way that nourishes your being. And what I learned in Rinzai and in Hatha Yoga was all sorts of breathing techniques that support that. And it is my own understanding uh, that th these breathing techniques, especially in the process of Zazen, were, are much more common in Japan than they are in Soto Zen in the West. That somehow they have, I, I think initially they were sort of described you know, Zen has this notion of like it's it's a samurai practice, you know. And you 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 breathe in this intense way, and become deeply concentrated and energized, like a good samurai. And I, I think that notion didn't fit so well with our culture. I think we, we, most of us just wanted to suffer less than, than uh, become a samurai. I think the ones who wanted to do that went straight to martial arts. <laughs> and I don't mean to put martial arts down. It's probably a wonderful practice. But, but this is also a yogic breath. 
allowing the inhale and releasing the exhale. And as you do it, notice. Notice how the inhale feels. Notice how the pause feels. Notice how the exhale feels. And I've come over the years to teach that, to recommend that rather than counting the breath, uh, you know, when, when I was in Thailand uh, and I was, I was in the monastery of Achan Feng. And during the day, the people would come up from Bangkok and he would just sort of, we'd sit for five minutes and then he'd congratulate them on sitting for five minutes and, and give them all medallions, which supposedly were just brought you great fortune. And then in the evening, after dusk, the rice farmers would come and they would sit and we would sit for an hour. And he would tell them, you're going to die. You know, if you want to practice, do it right now. And don't be half-hearted. You know, give it everything you've got. And, uh, and I think for a whole set of reasons that there's a skillfulness in offering ourselves the nurturance of kindness as we start to sit. In the Thai tradition, you would start with sila and you would you develop your generosity. You develop the stability of your life. You develop the ethics of your life. And then you would come to meditation. But somehow our tradition is to jump into samadhi. So that's why I would say to you, the, this, the yoga of gentleness and nurturing well-being with the breath. And now I have five minutes for the other three. Um, the second one is um, in, in a rudimentary way, it's acknowledging. And dependent upon the state of mind, you know, when the mind is quite busy, you know, there, there's still the capacity to interject a concept, you know? Oh, I'm getting really wind up about this, you know? Or, like when I heard that verdict yesterday, something in me just couldn't help but release, you know? Um, This, this is our world, 
This is how we're influenced, how we're so capable of hearing the news from the Midwest, you know, in minutes after it's happening, or, uh, or even live as it happens. Uh, I think such is the world we live in now that nurturing kindness with the inhale, releasing distress with the exhale, it's appropriate. And then as we, um, as we attend to the world, we, we can acknowledge even intellectually, even conceptually, oh, distress, oh, relief, oh, preoccupation, oh, gratitude. And then as the mind and the heart settle, the acknowledging starts to move from being a concept to being a felt event, you know. Like when the mind starts to settle, the breath becomes more of a sensate flow through the body. Uh, and that's what's acknowledged. And then we start to see allowing the abdomen to soften is a kindness that we can offer ourselves. Yeah. Letting the exhale happen has its own generosity and its own forgiveness. And then, excuse me for rushing, I have one minute. Uh, then the third quality is turning attention towards these sensate experiences. Turning towards them, and the fourth quality is experiencing them. And as this settles, and even before it settles, this is entering the realm of samadhi. There are many ways that's the word samadhi is used in the Pali Canon. And the one I would offer you, and one, to, one definition of samadhi I would offer you is continuous contact. And when the word contact, hasa in, in Pali, it, it's, it's a little bit what we might call light touch, you know. It's, that's what noticing is. Noticing is a light touch. And as we make contact, we make contact with a light touch. It's sensate. And as we open to it, um, the impact of that light touch becomes an influential experiencing. 
And as we open to it, as we open to experiencing, it's less about ideas and more about the activity of the moment. In the classic notion of samadhi is dwelling in momentary continuous contact. And I would say to you that the same process, notice, acknowledge, contact, experience, it can also, we can bring it forth, like you can experiment when you're having some kind of intense experience, just try it on. Notice, acknowledge, contact, experience. The key is the willingness to return to now, to rediscover what is happening now. This is the key. This is the Dharma gate. This is the entry into Samadhi. So, thank you. And um, I'm sure Gil and Fu will have something to say about all of this. And um, Gil and, and I will be taking up this on Saturday during the public talk. Uh, and of course, you're welcome to attend and listen in. Uh, but please, ask yourself, hmm, what is my practice? You know? And is that admonition Notice, acknowledge, contact, experience. Is, is that appropriate for me, given my way of relating to practice? It is said, the Chakyamuni said, here's what I'm offering, but please don't just take it. Test it. Take it, try it out in your own life. Discover if it is or is not useful. So, the finder of the Buddha way. That was his style. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge. And this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.